You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you both in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I can finish my course, the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I know that none of you whom I have spent this time proclaiming the kingdom among will ever see my face again. And so I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the full counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own number, there will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples away after them. Therefore, remember that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. Right, those are the words of the Lord. My job is to make the back end of that make sense to you today. So let's pray together and ask for that grace. Whew. Father, we could spend years thinking on just those words. We are spending months and we're asking you to make them clear and helpful and beautiful and animating, invigorating to us. So I pray that in this exchange of the preaching of the word, which is your instrument for, for faith to come, that you would visit us in this sacred time that we get together. Would you hear my prayer for that and answer, I pray, amen. All right, let me set this up with, for you with a story. Uh, the sermon today is called Wolves. A few years ago, Grace babysat for a friend's son every Friday for a year. She didn't take any kind of pay for it at all, just cared for him on those Fridays. At the end of the year, the dad came to us and said, you got to let me do something for you. You just watched our son for a whole year. He was a carpenter, so we said, well, why don't you build us a treehouse for the kids? I thought that meant a slab of wood with a rope, and then you would carve your initials into it. He didn't build a treehouse for us. 
He built a tree villa. You can put a dozen children in this treehouse. It's got walls, steps, a roof, a balcony from which you can get romantic and watch the sunset. The first couple of days that the treehouse was up, we could finally go into it. Our kids were just loving it. And Saturday morning, I was, is this cutting out? On a Saturday morning, I was uh, in the backyard doing some cleaning up, and Julia went up the steps to go into the treehouse. Unbeknownst to Julia, in the middle of the night, a raccoon, the size of a sixth grader, (laughs) had somehow crawled in the space between the tree and the base of the treehouse and got into it, but could not get back out that way. So she threw open the door of the treehouse, And I heard this shriek of bloody murder. And Julia didn't go down the steps. She just pole vaulted off of the treehouse and ran to the opposite corner of the backyard. Incoherent, shivering, and white as a ghost. I go peek in there, and what happened was that raccoon, when Julia threw the door open, had got on its back legs, fanged and toothed at her. This is supposed to be a safe place where my children will enjoy growing up with their friends, and this woodland animal had gotten into it. I'm a baby, and so it took all day to figure out, what do we do with this raccoon in this treehouse? We decided to prop the door open with a broom and go to sleep and hope that he would walk out in the middle of the night, which is what he did. When I told this story to my friends in Texas, specifically to my friend's son, Cole. Is that not the perfect Texas name, Cole? Cole was 10 years old, and he heard this story. And he was perplexed, and he deadpanned, and he just looked at me and said, why didn't you just shoot it? Why didn't you just shoot it? Now, I didn't have the guts to shame the Cruz family name and tell him that not only do we not own any guns, not only have I never owned any guns, but I've actually never even fired a gun, pistol, shotgun, rifle, nothing. Uh, So I didn't have a great answer to Cole's question. But to Cole, if you have a safe space where you are supposed to be caring for people under your charge, and a dangerous woodland animal with sharp fangs and teeth threatens them. You shoot the animal. Raccoon, coyote, wolf, whatever it is. All right. We're going to see that the same kind of thing is very true in the life of a healthy church. If a church is going to be safe for the sons and daughters of God, we need to be aware that sometimes there will be wolves who find their way into the life of the church and can do great damage to the sheep. And it's the job of the shepherds and all of us together to silence the wolves. Before we hit that in the text, we're going to work through two big words together with you. So the first one is the word orthodoxy. We got this word into English by jamming together two Greek words The words for right belief or right teaching 
Or you might hear it like this, sound doctrine. What we mean by this is any teaching or belief or doctrine that accords with the clear teaching of Scripture, that a best accounts for the paradoxes and the mystery and the complexities of Scripture, and best accords with the big idea of your Bible, which is the gospel of God. God has spoken, and when what we believe accords with what He has revealed, that is right teaching, sound doctrine, orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is not the teaching that has happened to land up to this point in the life of the church, but it's polluted by political machinations and skeptical, shady church councils or whoever had the right money in their pocket to buy what the church would believe to be true or who was the most charismatic personality during the day. That's not where orthodoxy comes from. We believe that Christ, by His Spirit, in love for you, for me, for His church, has been guiding His people over time, even through seasons of wild, dark craziness theologically. We are in one of those right now. Guiding them over time, cementing truth deeper and deeper and deeper in the souls of His people. That truth is summarized in things like creeds, catechisms, confessions, hymns, sermons, great books. All that the Bible has to say about who God is and what He's done and who you are and what you are called to. That body of work is what we call orthodoxy and that's where we want to live You will see posters in this building that say one of the things we're committed to is orthodox theology. Now you know what that word means. Here's another big word. It's the opposite of that. It's the big word heresy. This word also comes from Greek. It comes from the Greek word that means choice, to make a choice. Specifically in this context, it means making the choice to deviate from the clear teaching of Scripture and to begin to believe or to peddle your own insights. Veering away from sound doctrine or orthodoxy. A turn away. That is heresy. All right. Please feel that this word and this sermon today is only touching on essential gospel doctrines. So when we use this word, we are not talking about minor theological errors or the kind of missteps that all of us make or you land in one place on an open-handed truth and someone else lands someone else, somewhere else. That's not this word. This word is a decisive turn away from truth. Think of it like a continuum. There's two different places where you can land. Some churches land over here Everybody but us is a heretic. Everybody but us is a heretic. That's not where we want to land. Quarrelsome and contentious is not God's will for a pastor or a people. That's not us. But in our day, it's the opposite pole that is most dangerous, and that is nobody is a heretic. In fact, the only 
heresy left in American culture is to believe that there is such a thing as heresy. In a postmodern, post-truth age, everyone wants to land over here. No one is a heretic. That's our day over there, and we don't want to live over there, and here is why. Orthodoxy gives life, heresy kills. We were up at Toa Nippi one time. You know this place, crazy Indian name? It's a campground right at the southern edge of of New Hampshire. For some reason, we went up there in February. (laughs) And it was freezing and it was snowing on the drive up there. We got up there with a, a, a bunch of guys, men's retreat, and the guy who was running the place said, hey, why don't I go down to the lake with you? I will run my snow plow on the ice and you guys can play some street hockey or ice hockey without skates, whatever the right term is for what we were doing. Okay. And somebody said, wait, 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 wait. You can drive that pickup truck on the ice of the lake? And he said, yes. And then he made a doctrinal statement, a truth claim. He said, the ice near the shore is at least three feet thick right now. And I remember thinking... I hope that's orthodoxy, because I'm not jumping in a 13-degree lake to save your butt from drowning if you're wrong about it. Right belief matters right there, doesn't it? Whether his belief about the thickness of that ice was in accord with reality or a sharp turn away from reality was life or death, it's the same thing with orthodoxy and heresy. When we believe and we live from what is true about God, what He's done, who He is, and who we are, there is freedom, joy, peace, life. They talked about that at the well this month. Jesus said that the truth will set you free. Orthodoxy brings life when we believe what is not true, untrue about God and ourselves and how this world works, there is bondage, slavery, fear, frustration, confusion, misery, and death. Let's give you two examples from my life so you know what I'm talking about. One good and one bad. The doctrine of the cross of Jesus Christ radically changed my life. When someone opened up for me the truth that Jesus died on a cross in my place for my sins to bring me back to God. That is orthodoxy, and I cannot express the life that it has brought to my soul to live there. Unfortunately, also early in my walk with God, I was introduced to a heresy which says, You were saved by grace, but now you need to be good enough to show that Jesus made a good choice of you. And the Christian life is one of good, clean, religious performance. That's a lie. It's actually a capital L lie, which we would call a heresy, which nearly killed me trying to run that treadmill and climb that ladder. And it was only until I was introduced to the orthodox 
doctrines of grace that life came to my soul. Now, I could run through a bunch of different examples. Do you feel that? Orthodoxy gives life. Heresy kills. Because of this, it becomes important, crucial, vital, life and death. The pastors and their churches are vigilant about maintaining orthodoxy in the life of their church. One of the words that the Bible gives us for when that would not be happening is the metaphor of wolves. That word showed up two-thirds of the way through what I was sharing with you. Read this with me. This is the first thing that he says. Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for that church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. If we were in gospel community, I'd want you to pull out at least two big truths from here. The first one is is that the Bible uses the metaphor of flock or sheep for the people of God. We are also the family of God, the body of Christ, but we are like a flock that needs shepherding. We hang together and we need someone to lead us. The second big thing in this text is, this is not just any old flock. This flock, the church of Jesus, was purchased with the steepest price in the history of the universe that has ever been paid for anything ever. The righteous blood of the Son of God was poured out so that this could happen, so that you could be a part of the flock or the people of God. So, a church is a collection of sheep who are deeply, deeply loved by Jesus. If you have sheep, what else do you have? If you have sheep, you have shepherds, and you have wolves. So Paul says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in, not sparing the flock, and From among your own number, there will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples away after them. All right, let's do some work on this. Bunch of important things. First of all, feel the context. Super influential pastor Paul is leaving on a boat, and he knows that as soon as they get out of that dock, the wolves who have been held at bay by his presence are going to see an open door an opportunity. They will be emboldened by his absence. And they will be ambitious to make a name for themselves in the life of this church. Ambition is the root of all heresy. We say it like this, when the cat's away, the mice will play. Take the joint over. Has that ever happened to anybody here? Is it just because we live near a hill? When we go away for two weeks, we come back to everything in the kitchen's been nibbled on, and there's poop everywhere. When the cat's away, the mice come and play. This is kind of like this, but much more serious. When the pastor moves on, and there's opportunity, the wolves will step in. And wolves don't just nibble on your Oreos and poop on your counter, they tear out your throat. You need to feel the seriousness of this verse. Second thing is this. The danger to the life of a church always comes from within the life of the church and never without. 
Let me say it more explicitly. The primary danger in the life of a church is always within and never without. We saw this in the text in two different phrases. The first one said, wolves will come in among you, in among you. You feel that? Remember how that raccoon crawled, creeping at night straight up a tree to get into the space where he could then do harm? That's how this works. These wolves here will probably be new arrivals after Paul's departure. Once he leaves, they would creep in, they would sneak in, they would blend in. In this church, they would wear jeans and Air Jordans and a button-down shirt to just look like everybody else. They would fit in, and then they would go to work and kill. Then in the second clause, he says it like this. It's heartbreaking. From among your own number, there will arise men speaking twisted things. These are folks in the church who were already there and already fit in and blended in and were welcomed in. And they were going to take advantage of this opportunity. Leverage insider status to do harm. These would have been pastors, elders, deacons, Kalos teamers, gospel community leaders, student ministry people. You know how we usually say it's a wolf in sheep's clothing? Does everybody hear that this is wolves in shepherd's clothing? Insiders. All right, so hugely important principle here. Uh, Primary danger to the church is always within and not without. Let me talk about this with you. If I sat you down and said, hey, you tell me what you think the biggest threats and dangers are to the life of Seven Mile Road Church. Let's do a SWOT analysis and we'll spend some time on the threats. What would you immediately begin to list? Most of us would immediately look outside of the church and we would say, okay, rapidly secularizing culture. Nobody in these towns is interested in coming to church. That's a major threat. Uh, Potential changes to the tax code. How long will it be until churches are demanded to pray property taxes, potentially income taxes on their revenue? That's a danger. You may say more and more attacks on religious freedom in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Or you might say things like, well, it's the super high cost of living around here. People struggle to land with us and stay with us. Or it's the transience in a Bostonian culture. Or it's the proliferation of other gospel-centered churches, so all the people who used to come and grow this church are going to other churches, and that's a threat. Or you might just say, dude, we got zero dedicated parking spots. That's the biggest threat to the life of this church. Whatever it would be, you would be looking outside. And what I need you to see is yes, but the real dangers, actually the only ones that matter, the only ones that matter are within. Let me say it another way. Who is more of a danger to Jesus' church in the United States? Is it Madonna or is it Sarah Bessie? Is it Jason Lewis? You might have put him on your list if you were making your list. Outsider. Or is it Joel Osteen? 
insider? Is it Richard Dawkins or is it Andy Gill, writer for Christianity Today, insider? Is it Blake Shelton? He's a danger to my joy and peace, but is it, is it Blake Shelton or is it Lecrae, who we love, whose voice is more dangerous to the church? Is it a professor at MIT or is it a professor at Gordon College or Wheaton? Who's more dangerous? Who's a more dangerous publishing company to Jesus' church? Is it Harvard University Press or is it Crossway? Is it Pearson or is it InterVarsity? Who's more of a threat? Who's got a more dangerous website up? Is it CNN or is it hermeneutics? Is it Politico or is it the Gospel Coalition? The inside voice is always more dangerous than the outside voice. Here's another way to say it, because I just picked on others, and know, I know you're never comfortable with that. Who is the biggest threat to gospel health in the life of this church? Who is it? Yeah, you're looking at them. Or me and Tim, the pastor's elders of the church. It's always the inside voice, established, respected, trusted, known, credentialed, who poses the gravest threat. And that threat is always primarily doctrinal. Again, if I said to you, give me some big words and tell me what the biggest threat is to the health of a church, of our church, who would start with financial Some of you would say, financial, that's the biggest threat. How are we going to pay the bills? Some of you might say, operational, when we've got to figure out how to do a better job at what we're doing. Some of you may say, generational. It's hard for us to connect with new people because there's 173,000 children running around and they get all caught off guard and want to find their way back out to their car. It's generational. I say, no. The primary danger is always theological. If we are gospel sound, nothing else matters. It's going to be okay. If we lose the gospel, we're dead. Paul makes this point explicitly in the text when he says, these wolves, these insiders, these false shepherds will arise, and he says it like this, speaking twisted things. Did you hear it in there? That's our word for today. Twisted things. That word means to distort, to cause to make a defection, to corrupt, to turn away. That's teaching that diverges from orthodoxy. It's a twist and a turn from the truth. And the Bible warns us to say, sometimes wolves will sneak in and begin to twist truth. And what is the end game if we allow that twisting and turning to go on in the life of a church? It is the same thing that would have happened to my girl, Julia, if she would have been locked in that treehouse with that angry, hungry, rabid raccoon. Heresy kills. Paul says it like this, not sparing the flock. Devouring is another way that that's translated. 
And he says it like this, drawing them away, drawing them away from Jesus. In other words, if they are allowed in, wolves will tear the whole thing apart, take the whole thing down. Everybody will be harmed. Okay, if this is true, let's connect the dots. If Jesus desperately loves the people in this room, and he does desperately, and you live and die with gospel truth, you live and die with it, and that truth is always under the threat of wolves whose teeth are heresies. What does a healthy church do with wolves? What does a healthy church do with wolves? Before I say it, let me make sure that I'm perfectly clear. It's very important. I am not talking about well-meaning members who are just figuring things out. If that is you, you are safe here. Nobody's going to shoot you. I am not talking about awesome members of our church who have some theological, theological oddities, you know, in their closet like me and my dad and some of you. It's okay. You're safe here. Nobody's going to shoot you for some theological oddities. I am not talking about young believers with a million questions about orthodoxy. You are safe here to think and ask and question and doubt. Nobody's ever going to shoot anybody in the life of Seven Mile Road for asking and seeking and knocking. And I am totally not talking about skeptics or seekers who find themselves in the life of our church and are saying, I am brand new to even these concepts of gospel, sin, grace, truth, orthodoxy. If that is you, you are perfectly safe here. Nobody's going to shoot you. We are talking about men and women who adamantly, surreptitiously insist upon, will not accept sound doctrine, but promote dangerous heresy. What do you do when that happens? We do not coddle. We do not dialogue. We do not consider their perspective. We do not do what Presbyterians love to do, which is say, well, we'll allow a study committee to handle that one. No offense to my Presbyterian brothers, I love you. We do not passively, aggressively suggest or recommend or hint. We silence wolves. We silence them. The Witch's Boy by Kelly Barnhill, kid's book. Anybody heard of it? Awesome story for two-thirds of the way and then just collapsed. You know how that happens sometimes in the book? Anyway, in the first third, her dad is going to leave her behind in the woods, and here's what he said to her, and I wrote it down, circled it, and printed it out for myself. Her father warned Aine about the wolves. Mind you, shoot them before they rip your throat out, he said darkly. Never trust a wolf. Every father, every shepherd, every pastor, every disciple maker should have that quote within arm's distance. If that one's too intense for you, here's John Calvin, 1500s. He said it like this. The pastor must 
have two voices. Must. One for gathering the sheep, but another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. And then he says the scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. They prefer a 1500 reformer to a 21st century children's author. That can be your verse. I am 15 years into working hard with you at planting and growing a solid, gospel-centered, orthodox church in greater Boston. And there are dozens and dozens of great churches around here. Praise God. But there are dozens of churches that have been ravaged by wolves. And the light of the gospel has been extinguished. And the sheep whom Jesus loves have been ravaged and unspared and scattered. And Cole's question rings in my ears when I read about these churches or I drive by these churches. Why didn't somebody shoot the wolves? Wait a minute. Why didn't somebody just shoot the wolves? Right now, on this planet, in this country, in our great city, there are pastors in churches that have the name of Christian who are promoting all manner of heresies that are killing their people. And the question rings in my ears. Why didn't somebody silence the wolves? Who was in charge? Who was guarding the doctrinal gate? Where were the godly pastors, the godly men and women who loved their Bibles? Why didn't somebody say, truth is too precious, the sheep are too valuable, orthodoxy is too life-giving? Why doesn't anyone silence wolves anymore? The last verse gives us the answer. Because we're asleep and we're afraid. We're asleep and we're afraid. Paul says it positively. He says it like this. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease, did not stop to admonish everyone. Can you feel the positive side in there? Be alert means don't sleep on this. Don't sleep on it. And admonish means Will someone please stand up and fight hard for sound doctrine and gospel truth in the life of the church? That's how we say this last thing. We are going to love the sheep by silencing the wolves. I know as a postmodern American, everything I've said has been very hard to listen to, but the Spirit of God and the Word of God compels us to this place. We are going to love the sheep It is not unloving to silence the wolves. When we do this, we're just following in the footsteps of Jesus. Nobody was more aggressive with the heretics within the people of God than Jesus of Nazareth. Nobody. Because he loved truth and he loved the people of God. All right, I'm going to end with some rap. I'm not going to rap. I'm going to read you some rap. Shailene is one of my favorite rappers. He's a pastor now. He put out a track called False Teachers. 
And it was a cool thing because, you know, the little S's in false and teachers, he made a money signs. Ambition is the root of all heresy. And uh, he got blasted for writing this rap, blasted for it. But I loved him for it. And I want you to hear the, the first part of this. Let me begin while there's still ink left in my pen. I am set to contend for truth. You can bet will offend. Deception within the church, who's letting them in? I ain't really trying to start beef, but some who claim to be part of his sheep got some sharp teeth. That part rhymed right there in the rap. (laughs) You cast at me when I criticized them, but Jesus told us we must recognize them. And God forbid, for the love of some fans, I keep quiet and I watch them die with blood on my hands. A good, healthy church goes after orthodoxy together. That's primarily what we do, right? Is the positive end of this. We love the scriptures, we live in them, and we work to pursue truth. But every now and then, we're going to also have to go on the defensive and silence those who would rob it from us. I need you to commit to that with me. There is life there. All right, let's pray together. Father, first I pray that you'd strip us of all pride. We don't have all the theological answers. No way. But you have made some things, essential things, gospel things, super clear. In the life of Jesus in the record of your work in redemptive history, in the scriptures. I pray most of all that this church would just get set on fire for truth, that we would just love orthodoxy, sound doctrine, and that it would drive us to doxology, to right worship, that truth would drive us to worship. I also pray that you would put some steel in our backs that if there are times when someone would try to creep in here, we would not be afraid to say no. Heresy kills We will not allow lies to be promoted for the good of the sheep. I pray for myself and for Tim and anyone else who would be charged with guarding the doctrinal gate of this church. I pray that you would keep us far from ever, ever, that we would be helpful shepherds. But I also pray that every man, every woman in this church would begin to love truth so much that they would be aware when sound doctrine is being proclaimed and they would revel in it and that they would respond when it's not and they would make that right. That the glory of Jesus Christ would be known through us in our hearts being on fire for him and us as a church believing and living from what's true. These words of scripture drive us to pray those kind of prayers. I pray that you would hear and answer. Amen.